Well, then, with a view to the blessing of God, let's uh, turn to the chapter that we've read, Exodus 16. And verse 15. Exodus 16 at verse 15. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. What is it? The question and the answer. This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. <laughs> now we uh, began uh, to study this particular passage uh, last time. And in doing so, we're uh, following the same pattern that we followed in looking at the Red Sea and the waters of Mara. In other words, we're looking at the test that God tested them with, how they responded to it, and how the Lord responded then to them, and the provision that he made, or the deliverance that he gave. And last time we confined ourselves to the test. This, you'll remember, is the third test uh, since they left their homes on the night of the Passover. The first was at the Red Sea, the second test was at the waters of Mara. And in this third test here, the test again is very straightforward. It is simply to see whether they are learning to trust in God. In other words, learning to patiently and prayerfully wait for God to trust in his protection of them and his provision for them. Very simple, straightforward things. Will they learn to wait obediently and quietly in faith. But for the third time, they respond by complaining. Here, we're told that it's against Moses and Aaron, but Moses himself correctly identifies that their real complaint is against the Lord. So often we can complain about many things, providence, people, the weather, so many things, really of complaint against the Lord himself. But still, in his mercy, the Lord made a provision for them. And it's quite remarkable in a way that, although it says that the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I will reign. Uh, I remember um, a, a sermon once where I heard, isn't it, isn't it strange that it doesn't say fire and brimstone upon them? Rather, the Lord says, I will reign bread from heaven. So in spite of their complaint and their murmuring, the Lord is dealing very patiently with them in a way of long-suffering until their murmuring reaches ten times. And of course, at that particular point, the chastisement becomes very severe from the hand of the Lord. But still, he's teaching them and training them very, very gently, and therefore he makes a provision. And it's that provision that I want us eh, to look at with God's help this morning. And you'll notice of course that the provision that he makes for them is twofold. There's a provision of quail in the morning, sorry in the evening, and then the following morning there's a provision 
of bread. Now I think it's fair to say that both are miraculous. But they're miraculous in, in very different ways. In connection with the quail, the quail, as you probably know, are just small birds. And they're common enough in the Middle East. They fly low, and sometimes they can be caught quite easily when they do fly low. But the miracle here consists in two things. First of all, the very timing of their arrival that very evening. And the second part of the miracle consists in the sheer number of them, because we're talking here again, remember, about feeding probably in excess of two million people. So there's a miracle, a miracle of time uh, and of providence generally. And many of God's miracles in the Bible are like that. They're not miracles in the technical sense, suspensions of the laws of nature. They are rather just miracles of timing, uh, things of this kind. But the case with the bread in the morning is very, very different. The provision of the bread, well, that's not to do with timing as such or to do with the amount of it, but it's to do with the very thing itself, the substance, what it actually is, and as well as that, where it actually comes from. This is a different kind of bread to any bread that existed anywhere upon the earth. The reason for that is that it originated in heaven. More than once in the history and in the Psalms, it is called the bread of heaven. At one point it is called angel's food. I'll come to that in a second. So obviously this bread is a special kind of miracle that is teaching a, a special kind of lesson. And so that's really what we want to look at. I mean, the quail uh, is just a, an immediate provision like that, um, but the bread is God's special provision for his people. And as we look at it together, we pray that the Lord would bless it and do a meditation upon it. And with so many of these things, just take it away with yourself afterwards. I mean, to really profit from the word of God or to profit from a sermon from the word of God, as we'll see in a minute, we need to put work into it ourselves to really feed upon it. Now, the first thing we want to ask is, well, just what the children of Israel asked in verse 15, what is it? What is it? It's an appropriate question. In fact, that question in the Hebrew became the name of the substance. We're told in verse 31 that the house of Israel called its name Manha, which comes from Manhu, which means what is it? So that very question became the name was attached to the bread. And the fact of the matter is that they had never seen anything like this bread, and no one ever had. It just appeared all around the camp in the morning. When the dew that covered it vanished away, there it was lying on the ground, tiny little grains. We're told here it was like white coriander seed, something like small grains of rice. And once the people gathered it, they could grind it, they could bake it or boil it. And we're told that once they had prepared it, it tasted like wafers made with honey. That's how it's described in Exodus. Numbers 11 describes it as pastry made with oil. But it's like no other bread. 
No, of course, the question is, why does God do this? He could have provided bread similar to the way in which he provided quail. He could have given them a substance, well, any kind of grain, from anywhere. It's not difficult for God to provide grain that already exists, but significantly he doesn't. He sends them a special grain, and he sends it from heaven. It is obviously meant to represent something else. And clearly it does. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells us specifically that it does. This bread from heaven represents the true bread which came down from heaven, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ and the words which he spoke. If you like, the manna represents the word incarnate, Christ, and the word written, which is the word that the Christ spoke. Christ and his truth. Now, Paul tells us that um, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he, he writes what appears to us to be quite uh, strange words. He says, Brethren, this is 1 Corinthians 10, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. Now that's a reference to the pillar of cloud and fire. They all passed through the sea, the Red Sea. They were baptised into Moses, into, they were united to him under his authority, in the cloud and in the sea. As they passed through, their relationship with Moses was um, solidified and strengthened. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, Paul is assuming they know what he means by spiritual food, but he elaborates on the drink. He says they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So they ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. Now what that's telling us, without overcomplicating this, is that the bread of chapter 16, that's the manna, the bread of chapter 16 and the water from the rock in chapter 17 are to be understood together. They are both miraculous provisions that tell us something special about the way in which God communicates life to us from heaven. He communicates life to us through water from the rock, which is Christ, and bread from heaven, which is Christ too. So he satisfies their hunger with Christ, and he satisfies their thirst with Christ, who is the true bread which comes from heaven. That, of course, is what Christ said in his sermon. I am the bread of life. The bread of God, Christ says, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world through the words, of course, that he speaks. Well then, that is what the manna is. That's what it represents, Christ and his word, our spiritual food. So let's look a little more closely at this gift of manna. Let's look at the giving of the bread and then the receiving of the bread. Let's take first the giving of the bread. Who gives it? 
Well, of course, it is the Father who gives it. I mentioned when we were reading the passage in John that the Jews were giving the glory for the provision of manna to Moses himself. He gave them bread to eat. They understood that he to be a reference to Moses. Jesus corrects their interpretation of Scripture. He is a reference to God himself. It is, by the way, just a sin that we fall into very, very easily to ascribe the glory to people for anything that happens. It seems that we just do it instinctively. The flesh does it. We idolise man. We idolise ourselves. So Moses gets the glory. Moses gets the blame when things don't work out. When things do, it's Moses that gets the glory. It's astonishing how how the human heart just fails to recognise God uh, in his goodness and in his mercy and in his kindness. Now, of course, the Jews at that point were asking Jesus for a sign from heaven. They had seen signs on the earth. But they weren't satisfied with these signs or how he was doing them. Show us something unmistakable. Show us something from heaven, something that you can't reach, something that you can't touch, something that you can't manipulate, something that you can't move around with your fingers or your hands. Moses brought his bread from heaven. You do something similar like that. But Jesus, of course, as I said, corrects them. And he says to them that Moses did not give them that bread from heaven. But that my father gives you the true bread from heaven. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Notice the giver of the gift. The giver of this gift of bread. The giver of Christ. The giver of the word is God. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. And he refers to this giving of the Father frequently. Um, I proceeded forth and came from God. I have not come of myself, but he sent me. So the word incarnate is the Father's gift. The word incarnate is the Father's gift. But so, of course, is the word written. And on more than one occasion, Jesus tells the people that every word he speaks is not actually of himself. They are all, all his teachings, his parables, they are all given to him to speak. That was part of the covenant arrangement with the Father. Not only would he come, but he would speak exactly what the Father gave him to speak. In John 17, 16, he says, My doctrine is not mine, but it is his who sent me. My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And again, in John 8, and verse 25, he says, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But the one who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Those things which I heard from him. 
And again, as my Father taught me, so I speak. He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things which please him. So the Father then sends the incarnate word and he sends the written word. Now, friends, this may seem at one level to be very basic and obvious, and so it is. But it's also very important to remember. It's important not to forget. I've noticed through the years, from time to time, that people talk about Christ to the exclusion of the Father and of the Spirit, forgetting the love of the Father, forgetting the provision of the Father, and forgetting the Father's gift. Christ is the result of the Father's love. The provision of the Saviour flows from the Father's love, his Son, and his truth. And that's too easily forgotten. And let's make sure in our worship of God that we do not focus on Christ to the exclusion of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Because Christ attributes these things to his Father. So let's follow that example ourselves. So the giver of the gift, of course, is God. And you'll notice that he gives that gift from heaven. Now, I don't mean by that uh, that the same as to say that the gift is from God because God is in heaven. That's not what I mean at all. I mean, <clears throat> God gives us many gifts which come from the earth. Of course, ultimately they originate with God, but that's not the point. The point here in connection with bread is when it says it's from heaven, it's that it's immediately made in heaven. Not just that the giver is there, but the actual provision is made there too. Now when it says heaven, it's not a reference to heaven above. Like for example, we say, well, the heavens pour down rain or the, the rain comes from the heavens. By that we mean the atmosphere. The Bible uses the word heavens in connection with the atmosphere too. But it uses the word heaven in a very special way, which Paul calls the third heaven, which is beyond uh, the cosmos as we know it. It's the place where God dwells. Again, even that is a little bit misleading. God doesn't dwell in one sense anywhere, because he is everywhere. But from, from the moment God creates anything, there is a place where his presence must be manifested, uh, a place where he can be seen, uh, adored, and worshipped. And that is what we call heaven. In other words, it is a place where God exists, manifesting his glory, along with angels and the redeemed. That's where this manna was made. And it was made by God himself. And it is carried into this world by angels. Tons and tons of it. You think of how many tons of manna, two litres um, per person for over two million people, Think of the amount, the tons of manna that are carried into the world every single day for a period of over 40 years. This is an astonishing miracle. The fact that it's a, a recurring miracle um, doesn't reduce the miraculous nature of it. It is a genuine miracle occurring day by day, manna from the immediate presence of God carried into this world by angels. 
I think that's what's meant in Psalm 78 when it says that man ate angels' food. I, I'm very conscious that the most natural interpretation of that is to understand it as food that angels themselves eat. Now, I, I'm not saying that that's impossible, but I, I don't think it is really the meaning. I think it is food that was brought to them from the immediate presence of God by angels commissioned for that task. Myriads of angels bringing this seed, this grain, and scattering it on the face of the earth. Now, of course, <clears throat> again, the word, both written and incarnate, comes from heaven. That we know well. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He came from the immediate presence of God, even from the bosom of the Father, into this world. And so did the word of God. We are told in the scriptures that the whole of the scripture, or every scripture, or all scripture, is inspired by God. And as most of you know, the most accurate translation is expired by God. Not inspired, but expired. Inspired gives you the idea that the word was already there and that God put something special into it. That's not what happens. Although there are some people who think of the Bible like that as a human word that God actually puts something into. Not at all. The word in the Greek language actually means expired. Spirated by God out of himself. Every single word from the immediate presence of God, even from God himself. So that should make us value it. That should make Israel value this manna. This is God's provision for them that speaks of something beyond it, something spiritual, the provision of his son and the provision of his truth. So comes from God directly from heaven. Third, to whom is it actually sent? Well, of course, it's sent to his own people and it's sent to them in the wilderness. Why? To teach them, as Deuteronomy says, that they cannot live by bread alone. They're hungry, but they can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is God's way of saying to them, if you were feeding upon me daily and regularly, you wouldn't be complaining at the slightest discomfort that came your way. It's more than likely that the hunger that's afflicting the people here is, is not really all that serious. I mean, sometimes you, you come across things that appear perhaps more serious than they are. I made reference last week to Esau coming home, uh, wanting Jacob's stew and saying, I'm ready to die. But he wasn't ready to die. Nobody goes out hunting for a day and is ready to die with hunger when they come home. It's exaggerated language. This is discomfort. They are hungry, all right. They're uncomfortable and they're uncertain as to where the food supply is going to come from. But the immediate response is discontent, murmuring and complaining. And really God is saying to them through this miracle that if they were feeding daily and regularly upon himself, 
we would be far more satisfied, far more content, and far more ready to wait for God's provision in God's good timing. Do you remember again, like I referred to last week, when Christ was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, we're told that after 40 days he was hungry, and who wouldn't be? And the devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God, now the if there is is not the if of doubt, it's the if of um, since. Since you are the son of God, since that was said recently at your baptism, well then, use your power, use your authority, and command that these stones become bread. Now the Lord's response is interesting because he quotes the Bible in connection with the manna. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. <coughs> it was God's command that took me here. I'll live by that. And the word of God I've hidden in my heart. Well, I'll live on that too. That will be my meditation until God gives me the supply that he sees fit. You remember recently when we were looking at the, uh, the woman of Samaria uh, who met Jesus at the well. When the disciples came back with food, uh, they noticed that the Lord had mysteriously and miraculously revived. And they said to each other, has someone given him something to eat? I have meat or food to eat which you know not of. He says, my, my meat or my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He had a, a miraculous sustenance because he was feeding upon the word of God all the time. Now that is what the Lord is teaching through the provision of this man. He says, I am giving you a special gift here that is pointing to the special gift that is freely available for you every day. You must learn to feed from heaven. You must learn to feed from, feed from heaven's bread. Feed on the word that I give you through my son, which we'll see in a moment. Feed on my promises. Sustain yourself through communion and fellowship with me, through the very truth that I speak to you. Because in this wilderness, God is saying, nothing else will keep you but that. My bread, my water. Nothing else. You will not live in this wilderness, but by the provisions that I make for you. Christ is the way because he is the truth and the life. And unless we learn to feed upon Christ, then we can never make it to the heavenly kingdom. So that's the giving of the bread. Now let's look at the receiving of the bread. Now the interesting thing is that we're told that the bread fell very near to them in the camp. It was um, all around the camp and easily accessible, near enough to gather and to eat. Of course, that's the way it is with the Lord and his word too. The word is near us. Christ himself is near us. God is not far from any of us. That's what Paul even said to the heathen people. But we know it to be true that he's ever nigh to those who call upon him. And uh, God has given his word and made it easily accessible. But you'll notice that 
it still requires labor to benefit from it. The first thing that you have to do with the word of God is to gather it. And they were told to gather it in the morning. In fact, if they didn't gather it in the morning, we're told that by the time the sun was up, the manna would simply melt away. Now, I can't help but think that there's significance to that. And it has to do with giving Christ and giving the word of Christ, giving it preeminence and priority in our lives. I mean, it's generally true that if we seek Christ early, we will find him. But it's also true in connection with the word of God generally, that the morning is the time when the Lord would have us feed upon it in a special way. You'll discover in the Christian life that the day is lost unless the Lord receives his place fairly early on. And uh, it's, it's very easy to give our attention, even in a small matter. We're prone to do it, whether it's through a phone or something, just to immediately be distracted by the news of the world, as though that was the most important news to absorb on a day-by-day basis, when actually it isn't. Most of the news you read will actually be irrelevant to you and the life that you are living. Think of all the news that you've heard and read over the last 50 years, every single day. How much of it actually affected the life that you lived? Very, very little. However important you thought it was, lo and behold, the sun rose the next day. You still had the same life to live, the same people that you worked with, the same job to do. The fact that there was an earthquake in Shanghai or something didn't need to be the first thing that came into your head that morning. The most important news to hear is the good news. The most important person to meet that day is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no doubt that a meeting with him and hearing his voice can change the day. It can absolutely change the day. It can change how you view everyone you meet how you interact with them, and how you absorb every bit of experience that you encounter that day. In the morning, gather the bread of God. In the morning, come to the Word. In the morning, come to Christ. So they had to gather it. And you'll notice that they gathered it with diligence. They had to gather as much as they could. Now there are, I don't want to overcomplicate this really, but there are two views about how it was actually gathered because it doesn't seem to be as clear maybe as we would like or at least we don't see it as clearly perhaps in our translations. There are some who believe that uh, they all gathered as much as they could and that it was measured out afterwards. And when it was measured out afterwards that Just lo and behold, by God's miraculous provision, there was absolutely enough for everybody. So that he who gathered little had no lack. He who gathered much, there was not too much. In other words, that it was shared out and distributed. And once it was, absolutely everybody had their omar. And what gives a kind of credibility to that particular point of view is that Paul seems to refer to it like this in 2 Corinthians 8, when he's talking about the collection that's being gathered in, in Greece to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. He says that out of your abundance, he says, you can help just now those who lack. And he says the day might come when they in their abundance will help you 
when you have lack. As it is written, he says, he that gathered much had nothing left over, and he that gathered little had no lack. That application does lend itself to the idea that everyone gathered what they could. It was put in a common pile, perhaps overseen by elders. When it was distributed, lo and behold, there was an over uh, for every man according to his need. Now, whether or not that's what the passage teaches here, that's true, and it's a wonderful truth. It's even true in connection with the Word of God. Sometimes if you <clears throat> gather for yourself, perhaps you find that maybe you haven't gathered so much. But lo and behold, you meet the Lord's people who have gathered something and they give to you out of their own fullness. So you have no lack after all. Uh, that kind of thing can happen. Sometimes the way the Lord feeds you is through his people and what they have gleaned themselves. But having said that, friends, I don't think that that's what the passage is actually teaching. I think the way to understand it is that every day they gathered what they could and they all discovered that they had enough, that the Lord gave themselves enough individually and personally, just enough for their needs. Um, and that in itself is miraculous. Nobody was without an omar. Everybody got what God wanted them to have. There's an encouragement there to come hungry to God because if you do come, he will give you. There's a little, um, everybody uses different daily readings. There's an old daily reading that goes around called our daily bread. And it gives you a, a portion for the day. But that's exactly what God gives you. If you want it, if you're hungry for it, if you gather the portion, God will give you your daily bread. So they had to gather it. We've got to as well. You'll notice the word does not come in a prepackaged form. It's not ready to consume. I mean, it's like getting a packet of rice uh, from the shop. It's a wonderful thing that you get a packet of rice, but don't try eating it as it is. That actually takes us to the second thing, because as well as gathering it, you need to prepare it. You need to prepare it. This may seem to be involving us, and it is involving us. Notice the gift's free. We didn't earn the manna. We didn't win the manna. God simply gave it. But still it's not given in a form ready for consumption. Numbers 11 tells us that they had to grind it, beat it into mortar, or cook it in pots, or bake it in an oven. Why? God could have sent food in a form that was ready to consume, but he did not. Why? To teach us something about spiritual bread and spiritual nourishment. The Lord said this too. He said, don't labour, he says, for the meat that perishes, but labour for the food that endures to everlasting life. Labour for it. That reminds us that it's not just enough to read the word of God. That's like, reading a, that's like eating uncooked rice. It's not going to do for you what it's supposed to do for you. How do you read the word of God? Well, you read it humbly. You read it prayerfully. 
You read it in dependence on the Holy Spirit. You read it attentively. You read it in a teachable spirit. You read it as someone who is hungry. If we approach it like that, it will do our souls good. Now, I think the main lesson being taught is that it's in connection with the word written, but I think it's useful to note that even the word incarnate, let me, let me be careful here and respectful too, but even the word incarnate as he came into this world respectfully could be of no benefit to us. No benefit. By the life that he lived, he could impart no life to you. His goodness would not reach you. His goodness would not touch you. However long he was with you, unless he was bruised, unless stripes were laid upon him, unless he was made a sacrifice, only then could he impart his goodness and impart his life to you. He was bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. You cannot eat the sacrifice until the sacrifice is offered. The living Christ of no benefit until he first dies and then lives and then he is of benefit. So something needs to be done to the word of God written and the word of God incarnate before it is a blessing to your souls. So they gathered the word, they gathered the manna and they prepared it. Before I leave that, you'll notice that God gave practical tests in connection with the gathering of the manna. Just practical tests to see what their obedience was like. It's obvious that their faith was not right. Faith was very weak, but what about their obedience? Well, we sometimes think that our obedience will be as strong as our faith, but it won't. They, they rise and fall together. You'll notice in verse 4 here that God says to them, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Now he had told them at Mara, you remember at the waters of Mara, he had said to them, Diligently listen to the voice of the Lord. Do what is right in his sight. Give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes and I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians. So is there any improvement there? Well, he gives them two specific commands. The first is to do with the daily amount. He says, when you gather it, don't leave any of it until the morning. But some did. And when they went to it, there were worms all over it. And it was stinking, just overnight. Moses, we're told, was angry that they had kept some of it till the following day. Why? Because it showed a lack of trust. What if the manna's not there tomorrow? But God said the manna would be there tomorrow. Just accept it. Take what he gives you and use it. Not trusting God for tomorrow is a sin. It's a sin to be worrying and to be anxious about tomorrow. Just sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, the Lord says. Take today's portion, use today's portion, and believe that tomorrow the Lord will be with you too. Trust him for it. Trust him for it. 
So again, there's no surprise that this disobedience is married to a lack of faith. They always go together. Same problem with the Lord's Day. Now here you have the Sabbath. Of course there are some, including particularly Baptists, but other people too, who believe that the, that the Sabbath was given on Mount Sinai as one of the Ten Commandments. Well, certainly it was given on Mount Sinai as one of the Ten Commandments, but it begins with the word remember, because that's not where it originated. The Sabbath was in the Garden of Eden. The Sabbath was given to man before he ever fell. The Sabbath belongs to us as people. The day on which we keep it has changed, but it's still to be observed and in exactly the same way. A day of rest and a day of worship. So God said, gather the man on this day. The day before the Sabbath, gather twice as much. But we're told again in verse 27 that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? For the Lord has given you the Sabbath. And therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. No man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people from then on rested on the seventh day. A warning against disobedience. So these practical tests tell us that their faith is weak and their disobedience is sluggish too. This is the people that he's brought out of Egypt. Weak faith, sluggish in obedience. But that's why he brings them the way that he brings them. To test them, to prove them, to see what's in their hearts. So the bread's gathered and prepared. Last of all, and quickly, you'll notice that the bread is eaten. Even if you prepare it, of course you've got to eat it. And there's two things about the eating of the bread that are interesting to note. The first is that it was sweet to the taste. How often we're told that in connection with Christ, fellowship with him, and the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. They are sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now when we, when we learn communion with God in his word, when we step aside... And come in close with God and, and, and learn to take up his word. We'll discover that, that, that that's what it is. It's sweet to the taste. But, but we have to labour at that. Uh, we have to chew it. Uh, as Pink, Arthur Pink famously said, he said that, that, that chewing uh, was to eating what meditation was to reading. Chewing is to eating what meditation is to reading. If, if you're going to benefit from the food, you, you take it properly. Same is true spiritually. You, you chew over it, and then you'll discover how flavoursome it is. It's sweet to your taste, sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. And as well as being sweet to the taste, it is satisfying to the appetite. It's an interesting thing that God says to them, in the morning, he says, you shall eat bread to the full. God uses that expression. Now, God is picking up there on the words that they had said themselves, oh, that we, 
that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we <coughs> sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. What, what, what good did that do you? Bread to the full, God says, I'll give you bread to the full. This is the bread that really satisfies, the bread that really nourishes. And it is the only bread that satisfies and nourishes. Christ said, your father saved manna in the wilderness, and you know what? It is, they're dead. They're dead. Even the manna itself as a substance could not keep them alive. There was nothing miraculous in the manna to keep them alive. But the thing that the manna pointed to is miraculous. The thing that the, that the manna points to, that is the life of God in Christ, ministered through the word and sacrament. He says, that does keep you alive. Labor not for the meat that perishes, but for the meat, which, and the word meat there is just a Greek word for food, bread. Labor for the bread that endures to everlasting life. In other words, as you receive, as you receive the goodness of Christ in his word, it's ministering to eternal life. It's a thing that, that never dies. The, the life that it's ministering to never ever dies. In fact, that's why some manna was put aside in a special golden pot and laid aside in a holy place because it was telling us that not just do we feed upon God in this life, but we will feed upon him forever. Uh, God willing, we'll look at that next time, the golden pot of manna. But let me bring this to a close just by saying this. Like the pillar of cloud and fire, this manna never stopped. From this day till 40 years later when they were about to cross the Jordan. We're told actually in the book of Joshua there that the manna came for the last time. So the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night and the manna both continue until they reach the other side. God's protection and God's provision. They will never leave us until we reach the other side. That was a lesson Israel were to learn. We'll see as we go through the wilderness again how well they were learning it. Let us pray. Lord our God, you told Israel long ago to open their mouths wide, that you would feed them with the finest of the wheat. And there is no finer bread than the bread that comes from heaven itself, even from the immediate presence of God. Lord, evermore give us this bread. We know that it ministers to our deepest needs and to the immortal soul that you have given us. Help us to recognize the paltry fear of this world, and that it can do nothing for us. May our uppermost desire always be to feed upon Christ, to feast upon a sacrifice. In his name we pray. Amen. Our uh, closing psalm is Psalm 19.
verse 7, the excellence of God's word is brought before us. It is perfect, converting the soul. It is sure, making wise the simple. It is right, rejoicing the heart. It is pure, enlightening the eyes. And we're told in verse 10, in connection with all God's commands, that they are more than gold, yea, much fine gold to be desired, and they are sweeter far than honey, honey from the comb that droppeth. These verses then, 7 to 10, let's start to sing. Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.